We are back. And in this hour, we are breaking down many, I shouldn't say all, but many of the legal cases involving Donald Trump and trying to bring you uh, the basic information that you need to understand what's happening, the likelihood that Donald Trump might face a real jeopardy in terms of being jailed. And that could happen even before a jury hears uh, any of these cases. Joining me in this hour is David Slarsky. He is a New York-based attorney with more than 15 years of experience in litigation and trials. And also G. Edwin Rush. He is a Los Angeles-based litigation attorney. Uh, Thank you both, uh, David and Edwin, for joining me in this hour. I want to start with uh, ACLU. So ACLU... uh, usually on the side of progressives and the side of liberals, sued Donald Trump uh, 400 times or his administration 400 times when he was in office, uh, has now taken the position that the gag order entered by Judge Tanya Chetkin in the federal criminal case uh, brought against Donald Trump by special counsel uh, Jack Smith. The According to the ACLU, the gag order is too vague in its ban on targeting the prosecutor, potential witnesses, and the substance of their testimony, uh, because it could be read to encompass mere identification of people, issues, uh, whether or not such targeting is threatening or causes any harm. Those are the words uh, written by the ACLU in their uh, position uh, to the court about why they believe the gag order violates Trump's First Amendment rights. So David, what do you make of uh, the gag order to begin with, and then the ACLU's position uh, with respect to the gag order. Well, I, let's take them in reverse. Reverse. Um, I, I think it's not a surprise that the ACLU has come out and is challenging the, the gag order. The ACLU has a history of taking positions in favor of the First Amendment or a very broad interpretation of the First Amendment, um, which may lead the ACLU into positions that politically are are not always progressive. Uh, historically, the ACLU has stood alongside white supremacists, has stood alongside um, the notion that the cure for hate speech is more speech. And uh, so I, I don't think it's a surprise to see the ACLU come in and, and challenge the gag order here. Uh, with respect to the gag orders generally, um, you know, gag orders and the concerns about protecting the trial process, whether it's the jury uh, or the fact-finding process more generally, goes back all the way to, you know, the the revolutionary time period in this country. Um, You go back to uh, when John Adams was responsible for defending British soldiers who had fired into a crowd of of, uh, citizens or revolutionaries in Massachusetts back in the 1700s. And there were concerns about the impact of the crowd or the impact of bad publicity on the ability of those soldiers to get a fair trial. Um, so gag orders have a, have a long history in this country or the, or the debate over what can be said during the trial process. Trials are, are regarded by many attorneys and by judges as a sort of holy process or a sanctity, a process of sanctity and finding truth. Um, so, so there's a long there's a long tradition of this of of uh, of thinking about when it's appropriate to restrict what can be said. That that tension between the First Amendment, which permits uh, people to really speak without government uh, intrusion or restriction, and the need to preserve the sanctity of the trial process, uh, are two 
difficult or, or long-standing traditions that that come into conflict in, in this kind of a situation. There's a, lo- a strong presumption against a gag order, though. There's a real there's a real presumption that uh, people are able to speak speak out and speak out about what's important to them. So, Edwin, what did Trump's lawyers say in their papers where they were opposing the gag order that uh, made Judge Chuckin make the temporary uh, uh, issue the ruling that temporarily set the gag order aside? Like, what persuasive arguments, if any, did they present to the court that caused uh, Judge Chuckin to do so? Well, uh, first and foremost, I should state that I was actually on the board of director, directors for the uh, Southern California uh, ACLU for about three years uh, and uh, gave up my seat on the board maybe about two years ago. So I had nothing to do with anything related to this, but I just wanted to put that out there for full disclosure purposes. Um, Specifically for um, setting the gag order aside, there was an issue related to um, whether they were going to be successful on the merits of their motion for setting it aside. And I think the judge uh, was using caution when looking at the papers to see, hey, did I actually go too far? And what would be the harm in setting it aside for this limited amount of time as I'm reviewing this paper and weighing the interests of uh, former President Trump against what harm could potentially come from lifting the gag order for that limited amount of time while she looked at the papers. And I think weighing those interests, she decided that she could lift it for that limited amount of time. And in actuality, um, when, you know, uh, Mr. Slarsky made very uh, good points about um, the presumption being against gag orders generally. However, when uh, the judge uh, came back and actually reimposed the gag order, she looked at the harm uh, that President Trump's speech could actually impose on the justice process. And that in and of itself was what ultimately weighed the balance in favor of keeping the gag order in place in Judge Chutney's mind. Um, And I think that in and of itself, given given the, the loud voice that President Trump has, and in fact, what has come about from him using that voice in these circumstances, is what has ultimately rendered that order being put back in place. Um, Ultimately, um, from the ACLU's um, briefings and perspective, I think there is an issue related to the gag order being uh, very vague in First Amendment uh, case law. Um, there's a principle when and when a uh, limitation on free speech uh, is seen as being too vague to be understood or too vague to be actually imposed or or imposed by whoever is going to be the enforcer, then uh, it is going to be an impermissible limitation on free speech. In this so, case, oh, go ahead. Yeah, in this case. She, uh, Judge Chutney, pointed out in reinstating the gag order that she was limiting uh, any discussion about um, about the prosecutors in general. 
and she was not limiting it to any particular subject matter in relation to the case, but just any prosecutors. She did not want any mention of prosecutors from President Trump's mouth. That in and of itself creates a problem because it's, it's saying that even in the context of his political speech, he can't mention these prosecutors by name. Yeah, one thing uh, David Judge uh, Chetkin did in reinstating the gag order Sunday night is she barred Trump from uh, attacking court staff, potential witnesses, and uh, as Edwin said, members of the prosecution's team in the federal case against him. Trump responded to that by attacking Attorney General Bill Barr, who was the Attorney General. Uh, under his administration. And we know Bill Barr is a potential witness in the case because Bill Barr and Donald Trump had some conversations uh, after January 6th or, you know, even leading up to January 6th. So, I, you know, that was a direct violation of the gag order. And now the judge is in this, uh, what does the judge do with the Donald Trump? She says, don't talk about the prosecution team. Don't uh, malign the potential witnesses. He goes right out and starts, I mean, making the most, he, he called Bill Barr dumb, weak, slow, moving, lethargic, gutless, lazy, a rhino who couldn't do the job. He just didn't want to be impeached, which the radical left lunatics were preparing to do. And he wrote, that's what Donald Trump wrote about Bill Barr 75 minutes after the gag order was reinstated. And in big capital letters, Bill Barr is a loser. So what does a judge do when you have a just a, a petulant uh, defendant, you know, usually it's petulant child, follows the word petulant, uh, like Donald Trump 75 minutes later? Well, I, I think you have to look at what the purpose of the gag order is. And, and these situations are always highly fact specific about what's said and how it's said. Um, that notion of not talking about the prosecutors or the staff or the court clerks uh, comes directly from the New York proceeding as well. Uh, so presumably Judge Chutkin saw what what Trump was doing in New York and echoed that in, in the reinstated gag order in, in um, Washington, because in New York, Trump had made some comments about the court staff and the judge's clerk and um, really, really things that go to the heart of the, the judicial process. The gag order, the purpose of the gag order is to maintain, again, the safety, the security, the integrity of the of the fact finding and judicial process. Uh, it's not it's not simply to avoid publicity. And so I think you have to look at what you can contrast what Trump said about Bill Barr with what he said about Michael Cohen um, uh, or about uh, Mark Meadows recently. Um if you look at the words and if what what the person is saying appears to be targeted at influencing the witness or threatening the witness or affecting the witness's testimony, saying things like, boy, it would be a shame if he testified and then the prosecutors came to get him or something like that. That's a different kind of statement than saying, I think Bill Barr is a big dummy or, you know, over the years. Bill Barr tried to do all this hocus pocus when he was my attorney general and it never made sense. And I'm going to say that he's nuts or something like that, you know, kind of the, the unhinged types of things that Donald Trump tends to put out there in social media. The first of those statements goes to the core of the judicial process and is really likely to trigger a judge to say, if you're going to put 
statements out there that are likely to cause a witness to think about the impact of their testimony, and it's going to affect the witness's willingness to testify truthfully, then that is the kind of thing that's going to be subject to a gag order. If you're just out there saying the kinds of things that you say all the time about people being stupid or dim-witted or incompetent, and that's just who you are and who you've always been, that's less likely to have a specific impact on the judicial process. And ironically, one of the things that judges consider when they're deciding whether to issue a gag order or not is how effective it's likely to be. How effective is a gag order likely to be if it's imposed in an injunction? And here you have a guy where it's not likely to be effective at all, unfortunately, because he has no regard for the law, no regard for decorum, and that's part of his persona. And so ironically, you know, the the more unhinged you are, um, it factors against upholding a gag order in some respects because it's less likely to be uh, effective. You know, that, that I would also I would also add that the target of the speech does come into play. I mean, Bill Barr is someone who willingly puts himself out there in the media, even still, since he has is no longer uh, in the position that he once was, you know, doing the media hits, uh, giving commentary on a variety of topics, including those that would arguably be considered political in the heat of a political campaign. And so there will be a question as to whether, uh, whether, as Mr. Slarsky was saying, uh, are the speeches targeted towards the political nature of, of Bill Barr's position in the world or the uh, position as a witness in this case? Or is this something uh, that's more just uh, part of his position as a legal officer? So I, I guess what you're both are saying, uh, David, is that calling people dumb or even when Trump then went on Monday morning and said the judge hated Donald Trump, that she was biased, that uh, she's a Trump hater. Uh, her, her hatred of President Donald J. Trump is so great that she has been diagnosed with a major and incurable case of Trump derangement syndrome. That's Trump writing on Truth Social Monday morning about Judge Chutkin. Uh, is that a violation of the order? I mean, it gets it starts to get really complicated, I think, trying to determine which of these statements are a direct violation of the order and which are not, which is just, you know, like you said, just kind of more Donald Trump bluster. Uh, lots of pundits say that the things that Donald Trump have said would have landed him in jail. He would have already been determined to be in contempt of court if he weren't for, if it wasn't for the fact that he was a former sitting president. So when we come forward, we'll talk about what some of these statements uh, mean and how they may be or may not be violations of the gag order. And would Donald Trump be sitting in jail if he was anyone other than a former U.S. president? Stay with us, KBLA Talk 1580. We are back. And in this hour, we're talking about the two gag orders that have been put in place against Donald Trump in two different trials. Uh, one in Washington, D.C., that's being uh, presided over by a federal uh, district court judge, Judge Tanya Chetkin. And there's a second gag order uh, that has been put in place against Donald Trump. And this this gag order uh, has been uh, put in place by Judge Arthur Ingeron. And this happened on Thursday. Well, the gag order happened before Thursday, but on Thursday, 
the judge defended a $10,000 sanction against Trump after he said uh, Trump violated his gag order, which bars public comments about members of the judge's staff. Uh, and this is the case. This is involving the case that is pending in uh, New York. Uh, this is the civil fraud case where Don Jr. testified today. And the $10,000 uh, fine against Donald Trump stems from comments that he made in this trial on Wednesday of last week. He was in the courtroom. Uh, Michael Cohen, his former fixer, who he uh, hates at this point, was testifying and giving prosecutors uh, lots of good testimony about Donald Trump being a cheat and a, a fraud. And they were uh, in a break on the in the trial on Wednesday. And Trump says, this judge is a very partisan judge with a person who is very partisan sitting alongside him, perhaps even much more partisan than he is. So the judge took that statement about a person who is very partisan sitting alongside him to be a comment made about the judge's staff, which according to this gag order, Trump is barred from making comments about members of the judge's staff. So, uh, David, I'll, I'll ask you, uh, David Swarovski's here. He's an experienced New York litigation attorney, and G. Edwin Rush is joining me in this hour, an experienced uh, litigation attorney in Los Angeles. Uh, David, this judge in New York had no problem finding that this statement, of course, Donald Trump is arguing he wasn't talking about the clerk. The judge is like, I'm no fool. I heard what you said. You are talking about my clerk. Here's a $10,000 fine. What happens? Donald Trump's not going to stop talking about anything in this gag order. So what is this judge going to do next? Is it likely that we'll see this judge uh, take the pretty drastic step of ordering Donald Trump into some kind of confinement? Justice Engeron is uh, certainly no shrinking violet. Um you know, I think what was really the most remarkable thing about that episode is that the judge actually swore Trump in after the uh, after he made those comments outside. And you know, a lot of people have been wondering whether Trump would testify or not. Trump did testify. He was forced to by the judge. And, um, you know, we remarkably now have a finding by a judicial officer that a former president of the United States is not credible and can't be credited. <laughs> Uh, because Trump took the stand and said that he was talking about the witness and about the judge and not about not about the judge's clerk, who the judge was trying to protect with the gag order. And the judge made an affirmative credibility determination that the, that Trump's testimony could not be believed. And that is just an astounding step in American history, that a former president of the United States went under oath and a judge made a determination that he cannot be credited. His testimony was false. Um, yeah, and in layman's terms, that Trump was lying. He's lying. Make you it know, play. <laughs> he was a lie. He, he was lying, and he is a liar. So right. Well, I, you know, you get you get to. I mean, there's no way to avoid the finding that he's a liar, but that really does go to what the judge will do next. So the first time he violated uh, the 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 gag order was a five thousand dollar fine. This time it was a ten thousand dollar fine. You know, the question in my mind, will it be $15,000 next time or will it be $20,000? Is he is this arithmetic increase or exponential increase? Uh, because pretty soon we'd get from 20 to 40 to 80. Uh, you know, the, the question is just how quickly the judge will will accelerate. But, the penalty. Well, let me ask you this, David. If this was anyone other than Donald Trump, 
would it be this kind of mathematics game or would the judge say, okay, 5,000 the first time, 10,000 the second time, the third time you're going to sit in a jail cell at Rikers to think about your continuous violation of my order. I mean, or, or would, if, if it were you or me or anyone else that hasn't been the president of the United States, would we get the leeway to just pay money? Because, you know, presumably Donald Trump is a million, a billionaire, although we know he's not, but presumably five, what's $5,000 to him? What's $10,000? That's nothing. Well, there's one man you should ask, Arivo, which is former city council member Don Hill down in Dallas, Texas. Uh, who was running for election and was uh, he was a city council member. He was up for election. Uh, he was the mayor pro tem and accused and indicted of of bribery, receiving bribes. Uh, there was a gag order imposed in his trial. And a few days before the trial started, he went on a television show and made some comments. This was back in you know 2011 that the Bush administration was after him because he was a Democrat. And uh, he ended up not only paying a substantial fine, but he ended up in prison for 30 days in violation of the gag order because the judge made a determination that it was willful, that he knew what he was doing when he went on TV and, and made those comments. And, you know, I think if you had Don Hill on this on this show, he'd be telling you that maybe there are some other circumstances that led to uh, the more severe contempt uh, penalty that was imposed on him versus uh versus our former president who's sitting up in New York. Uh so it can happen, you know, it's not it's not common. The more common penalty is is uh incremental fines. Um there can be adverse inferences given uh by the judge, but typically it's a fine. Uh it can be it can be criminal though if if the judge finds that uh that it is a uh, a willful violation of the gag order for sure. What do you think happens, uh, Edwin? Does Donald Trump end up, you know, assess $200,000, $500,000 in fines? Because we know he is not going to contain himself. He's not going to stop speaking negatively about the judge, the judge's staff, and all of the other individuals identified in this gag order. Uh, do you suspect this just becomes about, you know, adding on more and more financial fines to Donald Trump? Or do you think Eventually, this judge says enough is enough and does take that very drastic, never uh, happened before in this country's history of putting a former president in jail because he is willfully defying a gag order. Ultimately, I think it is going to be an incremental approach. Uh, putting someone in custody in a in a uh, in a in a civil context is generally seen as as like a, a last resort resort kind of issue uh and ultimately i think it's going to be a consequence of likely two things one the kind of statements that are being made uh by uh, former president trump and what is resulting from those statements. If there's any sort of harassment that occurs against uh, the court staff as a result of these statements, I think that's going to be heavily considered by the judge um, if he's seeing any escalation of of, um, of, of harassment by them, any sort of um, third party instances of them being violated in any sort of way. I think that's going to be considered heavily. But I think there are a lot of ways that the judge can handle this that don't involve putting uh, anyone in custody 
as a result of the speech. And so I think it would be uh, it would be likely that those approaches would be taken before uh, President Trump is put into custody. Well, speaking of third parties, uh, David, we know in Alabama, man, this isn't directly related to these uh, case in New York or the case in D.C., but an Alabama man called Fonnie Willis, the prosecutor in Georgia, and left her this very threatening, uh, you know, voicemail message. Presumably he's riled up or at least encouraged by this rhetoric that Donald Trump uh, continues to spew against the justice system, against prosecutors you know, against our, our entire system. So uh, how do you connect the dots in some of these cases? I mean, it, it's going to be impossible in a case like that to, you know, prove unless the co- guy comes into court and says, I, I heard Donald Trump or he made a post on Truth Social and, you know, it, it moved me or motivated me to go and make this threatening phone call. So I, I think for a lot of folks, they're sitting back, like, how much evidence do you need uh, when you're dealing with a person like Trump who's used to using coded language and is used to, uh, you know, trying to be slippery. Uh, he's definitely uh, very accustomed to trying to gaslight uh, after he has, you know, made certain statements, like in the case of uh, New York, where he tried to walk the statement back. Uh, but lots of questions about that. When we come forward, I want to talk about Donald Trump Jr., uh, what he testified to today and what we can expect to hear from the rest of the Trump family as they take the witness stand in the civil fraud case pending in New York against Donald Trump. Stay with us, KBLA Talk 1580. Before we talk about Donald Jr.'s testimony today in the civil fraud case pending in New York, I do want to go back to this Alabama man. So a federal grand jury in Atlanta indicted a 59-year-old man on allegations that he sent Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis threatening messages over her prosecution of former President Donald Trump. So this man's name is Arthur Ray Hansen. He's from Huntsville, Alabama. He was indicted uh, just this week on transmitting interstate threats, according to the Justice Department. Uh, It says that Hansen called the customer service line on August 6th and left voice mail messages threatening violence against Willis and the local county sheriff, Patrick Labatt. He says, watch it when you're going to the car at night, when you're going into your house, watch everything that uh, everywhere that you're going. Uh, He says, I would be very afraid if I were you because you can't be around people all the time that are going to protect you. Prosecutors have said that uh, this was about this man was basically threatening Fonnie Willis, telling her, when you charge Trump on that fourth indictment, anytime you're alone, be looking over your shoulder. Uh, This is, again, comments made by this uh, Alabama man on a voicemail to Fonnie Willis. So, uh, David, any chances that the judge in this Georgia RICO case is also going to have to impose some kind of gag order on Donald Trump? I think it's, you know, I think it's probably a foregone conclusion that it will be imposed. And and what's so troubling about this and, and does factor into this, I presume it was on the minds of of um, the other judges as well, is, you know, Trump is is facing charges of inciting an insurrection against the, the country. Um, he knows the power that his words have. This is not just any criminal defendant or any uh, litigant that is standing in front of the courthouse steps 
screaming from, you know, screaming from the steps that I'm, you know, I'm a free bird and will always be a free bird. And, you know, you, you will remember me or something like that. You know, this is, this is uh, a man who knows and has seen the power of his words and, it, and the, the damage that it can do. People were killed in that mm. riot as a result of his words. Um, so I, I think that these are really, it, it is a very serious situation. And uh, I, I certainly wouldn't be surprised to see uh, the judge in Georgia enter a similar gag order. Um, and I wouldn't, it, it wouldn't shock me to see incremental penalties against him. Yes, uh, you both of you seem to think that jail or incarceration is not likely to be one of those penalties unless, you know, something uh, far more significant happens. I know a lot of people are disappointed about that because a lot of folks believe if this were anyone other than Donald Trump, jail would definitely uh, be on the table. I want to move real quickly to Donald Trump Jr. He testified today that he had no involvement in the annual financial statements that his family's business gave banks. Uh, and insurance companies, despite language in the statements themselves, suggesting that he was partly responsible for them. He did acknowledge signing uh, some of these documents, but he said he didn't know much about accounting, that he relied on the Trump company's accountant to make the determinations about what should go into these financial statements. Uh, he was a very different Donald Trump Jr. is what we're hearing. He wasn't this bombastic, arrogant uh, Trump Jr. that we often see on cable news, on Fox News, but that he was very respectful, that he was very deferential to the uh, judge and to the, the court process. Uh, Edwin, what do you think this testimony does for the case against the Trump organization? Does it help? Does it hurt? And then we're going to talk about what we should expect from the rest of the Trump uh, clan as they also will be called to testify. Well, first and foremost, I, I would say that his testimony is very self-serving insofar as it's protecting his own liability in the case. Uh, in terms of his involvement in, in regard to the accounting and whatever valuations he made related to the uh, properties and other assets of the company, uh, you know, I think in this type of organization, you know, you get, you're getting very, very different kind of tellings of the story related to how the Trump organization was ran. In one instance, on one hand, it's a very large organization with great assets. And on the other hand, it's very close knit, closely run, very tightly run by the small circle of individuals that all have a say in, in how everything goes. So I think uh, Trump Jr. is telling you that ultimately he was leaving it to the brain trust of the accountants to let them tell him how all of these assets were supposed to be valued. Um, ultimately, I think that may uh, be found somewhat credible uh, given his position in the company. I, I think if you uh, follow uh, what is known regarding the Trump organization over the years, uh, Donald Trump Jr. was not always the most uh, involved related to the 
runnings of the company on the day to day. I think that was more of an Eric Trump uh, uh, role in the organization. Uh, Donald Trump Jr. maybe being more of the figurehead type and more of the voice of the organization. Ultimately, I, you know, he's he's telling you that side of the story. So ultimately, it'd be up to up to the fact finder to make a determination as to whether he's credible. Uh, David, let's talk about Donald Trump uh, himself. He's supposed to take the witness stand. We know uh, in the deposition that was conducted in this case, he and his sons took the fifth uh, several hundred, I think some by some accounts, maybe as many as 400 times. Do you expect him to do so when called to testify next week? And from a legal standpoint, since this is a civil case, not a criminal uh, case, uh, what impact will hit? Well, taking the fifth, if he does decide to do so, what impact might it have on this case? Still skeptical that he's actually going to take the stand. I think um, there's too much at stake out there because there are criminal proceedings elsewhere um, for him to really roll the dice on on a, a sworn testimony under oath in a civil case. Uh, it just doesn't make a ton of sense. But then again, you know, we see a lot of things. Well, can he be forced to take the stand and say, you know, take the fifth with respect to every question that's asked of him? He he certainly could be. I mean, the the you know the pro the the he could be forced to take this to take the fifth, and you know there could be an inference drawn from that because it's not a uh, it's not a criminal prosecution. Um, you know, and I think what's interesting about this. So when you're going to take the fifth in a criminal case, obviously that's not going to happen in front of the jury. There's not all this drama around it. Uh, but in a civil case, and in this case, one there's no jury. The judge is the trier of fact. Uh, there's not going to be, uh, you know, any pr protection of you taking the fifth. You're going to take it over and over and over again. And here's a guy that we know likes to say, if you take the fifth, you're lying. That's what he, you know, said throughout his career. So if he does take the stand, if he's forced to be uh, to take the stand, and he says the fifth, the fifth, the fifth, over and over and over again, you know, two hours of questioning. And we know in a civil case, the judge can draw certain inferences from you not answering the questions. But what do you think that does, you know, to uh, the public? Because this is all about the public as much as it is about what's happening inside that courtroom. I actually think it'll go more quickly. Justice Angeron has not shown a lot of patience for for cumulative questioning or repetitive questioning. Um, it may well be if he's forced to the stand, he takes the fifth a few times and then, you know, makes a bit of a, a, a speech and says he's not going to, you know, he's not going to testify because his lawyers have told him not to. And he's not going to answer these questions because it's all rigged and everything like that. But I really I would be surprised if Justice Engron allows a process where he's questioned for two hours, taking the Fifth Amendment over and over again. Uh, sometimes it's just done with with one question, which is. Whatever questions I ask you here, you know, are, are you take the Fifth Amendment and or invoke the Fifth Amendment? And you know, th there's no there's not really a lot to be gained here for the prosecutors either, because there's no jury here. The judge has already made up his mind on liability. Um, any any incremental benefit is is a little bit theatric and probably not going to sway this judge. The judge has already telegraphed where he's going with this decision. Yeah, you know, I think. Oh, go ahead. We're yeah, out of time. Gonna, Give me two seconds. Sure. I was going to say, ultimately, I think in terms of the effect on the public, him pleading the fifth, I think it's there's two different publics out there. And for Donald Trump's public, it's not going to make much of a difference. 
Yeah. All right, we are out of time. Thank you so much, David Swarski and G. Edwin Rush.